Members of the TalkScript team were on site at JSConf US 2019, where we did a series of interviews with the conference speakers. We had a great time meeting these thought leaders and learning more about each of them and their talks. We've compiled the interviews into a six-part series to help share the essence of JSConf US 2019. This episode contains interviews with Daniel Cousineau and Charlie around the theme of using JavaScript beyond the typical website. And we're back. Uh, I'm Nick Nisi. I'm Sam Menzo. And I'm Daniel Cousineau. Welcome, Daniel. So we just got out of your talk, uh, and it was called Time as a Social Construct. Mm-hmm. And so we know about these libraries like Moment.js and DataFins and some others that you mentioned in there. But I'm really excited to talk to you about the new library that fixes all time that you introduced today. The library that fixes time? <laughs> yes. Uh, the library that fixes time is called uh, Chucking Your Laptop Out a Window and Going Into the Woods and Living Off the Land. Yes. Uh, I highly suggest it. Uh, and you just stare at the sun all day to figure out what time it is. Yeah. I, I thought time was bad before. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> this is one of my favorite talks to give. I've given shorter and like earlier renditions of this at Brooklyn JS and Manhattan JS. And I absolutely love this talk because, yeah, it's definitely a peeling back an onion of like, <laughs> I asked a stupid question once. I'm like, I wonder why this is. And I started digging in and I just realized it got worse and worse and worse yeah. as I dug in. And it's just, I realize now where there's only a few so-called time experts because everybody else stays as far away as they possibly can. Right. <laughs> so th- that is how you got in. You just kind of had a question about it and just started scratching that itch and digging. Exactly. That hole. I started, I started digging in. I was like, okay, why is this the case? Why do I use America slash New York? I started learning about the INA time zone database and it led me to like, oh, there's these historical changes. And I started digging into history and I got this book that I sheepishly, I have to admit, I only read about halfway through it, but it's called the global transformation of time. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a, uh, kind of like a worker's perspective of like time and how it transformed in my talk. I tried to bring up a few times about how it was really the industrialization of society and how the standardization of time and mechanical clocks was really a function of the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. And it really deeply impacted kind of the working class back then. It was fascinating uh, to dig into. I would not call myself an expert at all. I'm just uh, somebody who's barely scratched at the surface. (laughs) Like It's such a deep and complex subject. I don't even want to know where it goes then beyond that because, wow. Yeah, I mean, like you said, like time zones are like political beasts, right? Mm-hmm. Like that—that that was I never thought about it um, that way before because it does seem like a simplistic question on the surface. The the one thing that was running through my mind is kind of the you know all programmers joke about how tough time is mm-hmm. dealing with time and time zones and and then every every fall and every spring it's always we need to get rid of daylight savings time because that will fix all of our problems and you have convinced me that that won't even begin to fix. It will fix some complexities. Uh, I think the struggle that we will have with daylight savings time is we are very, like I said, we're very uh, circadian creatures. We kind of like, I really enjoy being able to leave work when the sun's still up. And Mm -hmm. uh, the further north you get from the equator, the more that variance, like we all know that seasonal affective disorder is like a thing, but Mm -hmm. growing up in Texas, you know, pretty far south down, when the seasons changed, the sunset really didn't vary that much. Like, yeah, it set a little bit earlier in the winter, but it wasn't that bad. Mm -hmm. When I moved into New York 
city, not only does the sun set significantly earlier than even than it did in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, there's also a lot of buildings. So like the sun went away like by like 4.30 or 4.45, like it's already dark. Yeah. And like it really, like this last winter, like it really got to me. And so like we're very attached to the sun. And so there's no way that we're ever going to disentangle time from the perspective of a user from the sun. We can have these universal timestamps to like log system events, but eventually we need to translate it into a time that a human can read as they're doing it. Like mm-hmm. I absolutely hate looking at system logs in UTC. Like mm-hmm. I prefer systems that can at least show me like, oh yeah, yeah, two p- you know, at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. This is when it happened. I don't yeah. want to read about it, you know, at 6 a.m. or whatever yeah. that it happens. Like I don't understand that. I want relative time. Two minutes ago, four hours ago. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like how uh, you, you mentioned that you want it to be like a good way to help th- with this is to be more explicit about time zones when you're um, when the user is like inputting time. Mm-hmm. Like I liked how you said like, oh, well, you just have to you know alert them. Hey, like listen, it will be saved in this time zone in this particular you know area. Mm-hmm. That was pretty like smart. I like that you call it smart. I, I specifically do that because like I have no idea what's going on in any <laughs> system. I'm paranoid. I think the system works one way, but it doesn't. And like I love that little reassurance of like, oh. I need to schedule this for 2 p.m. When is this going to go off? Like, I need it to tell me. Like, Google Calendar is kind of like, I originally was going to put some slides in. I decided not. But, like, Google Calendar is, like, halfway in between. Well, like, I'm plugging in an event in my Google Calendar. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm plugging in this event, but what time is it? I see the now line, but like, did my calendar actually change when I came out here to San Diego? Or is mm-hmm. it still in New York time? Oh, yeah. And like, at least sometimes when you open up an event, you get that explicit time zone button. So they're like half good and half bad. Right. But like in the past, in some past companies where it's become a thing, like scheduling something in advance, I did make sure to like really push and put just like a little helper text below the field, like this 2 p.m. will go off in Eastern time because our systems were built to operate in Eastern time. Right. Whether or not that was a good idea it doesn't matter i at least tell the user hey listen when you schedule this this is the time that it's going to go off it's going to be eastern time not san francisco time or whatever right right yeah i think our google calendar actually has an option for you to list out different time zone in addition to the, your current time zone which, mm-hmm. is, which i found pretty interesting with the uh, globalization of things i'm curious so you said like the um, industrial uh like the era really prompted this you think that the globalization of like the the current day and age has like i don't know kind of warped it into something even more because like we have to um, talk to people like for instance i might have to talk to somebody from london you know like during my normal work day do you think that has an impact on it definitely does i think what's happened is is previously like this started to become an issue like the telegraph and the phone are really just as fast of mechanism as like a zoom meeting however it was previously really only like say a banker in new york calling into london or something was this really an issue for them mm-hmm. however with trains that's when we really started to feel it i think what we see is just a constant acceleration of now it's not just a certain kind of you know class of person like bankers and kind of that upper mm-hmm. middle you know wealthy class or whatever it's everybody has to deal with this issue all of a sudden literally anybody has to deal with the issue i've got relatives across the world and i've got to be able to call them like we have become such an interconnected society that even if you're not physically going places you're dealing with somebody who isn't physically with you and that kind of coordination of time and trying to figure out when these things should kind of sync up and happen at the same time is it's just as difficult as it was back then like the difficulty hasn't changed it's just more people feel it and as we're building these systems we have to remember as programmers like Sure, I'm working on a system like I'm currently at uh, Rent the Runway, and while Rent the Runway is only in the United States, only has to worry about a few time zones, and we're technically not international, 
a user may be in an international country about to fly in back in and they want to pre-schedule their shipment. We have to realize that people use our systems in ways that we didn't intend. And those people may not be currently in the United States. They may not even be permanently or often in the United States. And we kind of have to be aware of even if we don't build in full complex support, we should at least be aware of the complexities of the lives that they're living and try to make it a little bit easier. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Like you have to really think about who your user is. Like critically, I think to, like something that programmers are traditionally not very good at, you know, because <laughs> they're very just technically minded. Um, but yeah, um, another question I had uh, that I thought might be interesting is if you know there's like if there's any sort of um, proposals for kind of um, standardizing this these time zones um, for web browsers. When I was talking with some friends about this, when I was talking to uh, uh, Miles and uh, Miles Borens and Tierney, um, not even going to pretend to, but Siren, I was talking to them and they brought up the temporal proposal. If I remember correctly, it's for Node or maybe it's like a web thing. Either way, there's some proposals to kind of like fix some issues with gate time. Mm-hmm. It's, it will kind of help fix some of these. There's I'm, I know that there is the INTL um, extensions uh, with the web standards for INTL is kind of bringing in some of these uh, standards. Eventually, we'll see these APIs cemented in browsers and easier to access. It's the it's the evolution I've noticed of every programming language. You start out with your first daytime implementation, and every single programming language makes the same mistakes no matter when they were created. PHP went through this. We're like, oh, crap, we made daytime, and it was cool and all, but it's mutable. Oh, man, we made a couple of mistakes on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or we, like, we didn't default to ISO 8601 for any in and out uh, things. JavaScript made the smart decision to, like, really lean heavily on ISO 8601, but made it mutable. Like every single programming language, unless a mutability is built into the programming language at the beginning, they always make these same mistakes and they always make their secondary evolution in there. And things usually get better. Like Mm -hmm. luckily for us, it may not be true everywhere, but at least in software development world, the march of progress usually brings us into a better state. So Mm -hmm. things are getting better. And for the most part, even what we have right now is sufficient. I brought up on the talk, like let the browser and the user figure out what they need to display like if you get a timestamp that has this contextual information like a full ISO 8601 timestamp just shove that into the daytime object and let the browser decide how when it should move it forward the user's local computer I guarantee you will know more about whether or not they're respecting daylight savings time than you do Mm -hmm. so let them handle the calculation offload it to them and let them deal with it in the same way that when you're dealing with accessibility don't take over control of the system let JAWS or voiceover or anything else like that Give it the hook so it can operate and let it do its job. Just like let the browser do its job, let the user do its job. Mm-hmm. Tell them the context, let them do the job. You don't have to take this burden. The users can be dumb sometimes, but they're, my favorite phrase is they may be dumb, but they're not stupid. So, <laughs> You mentioned like saving off the offsets mm-hmm. uh, into the database and not just the UTC time. I guess I didn't connect why that's beneficial. If the browsers can translate that and know more about your time zones. So part of it is, for most use cases, for most of what we do as programmers, Uh you can convert it to UTC and it will work just fine. That's why it has been kind of the standard advice. But it's also been the standard advice is because for the longest time, the most popular database technology, MySQL, its timestamp format was only 
year and time, like date and time. It couldn't provide offsets. Mm -hmm. So you needed to convert to UTC because when the timestamp was in the database, you had no idea what offset it was in. So you mm -hmm. had to convert it to a simple thing. So we've kind of taken this store it as UTC as uh, received wisdom. I'd almost say like, for example, you're asking the question is why is it beneficial to store with the offset as it was presented? I'd almost flip it around and say, why is it beneficial to turn it into UTC? If you're using a MySQL backing, it's beneficial. That means that you can actually properly do date calculations in your queries. But if you're using Postgres, Postgres supports storing a full ISO 8601 style timestamp. They support providing that offset. So my question is, is why go through the effort of removing something that's already there if you don't actually have to, if your database system supports it. Mm -hmm. But you definitely still want to store this contextual information because even though maybe right now you don't necessarily need to know it, but maybe in the future, knowing this contextual information, like especially if you're building like an automated alert system, I don't want to send somebody uh, pinging on their phone at two in the morning and I need to know these things. Usually we'd store it as like a as like a setting on the user profile information and use that information. But sometimes it's nice to know for historical logging purposes, what was the uh, offset whenever it came in. It'll translate in and out of UTC as it needs. It's just the way I look at it is, is why lose resolution for no purpose? Like why you why lose the resolution when it's just as easy to keep it unless you're using MySQL, in which case it's not easy. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, you talked a bit about the, uh, I think it was IANA, Time mm -hmm. Zone Database. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? You said it contained just um, like a, like data about the, what is it, like localization of the time zones or was it? Yeah, so it's basically, it's a, it's these, uh, it's eventually rendered out into what are effectively, I want to say they're tab separated files. Um, it's this database of every single kind of um, centralized political entity that, has sets a standard time and the history of whether or not they were respecting DST and what the offset was over time. So you open up this database and you can see the history of, say, uh, Egypt slash Cairo. You can see the history of when it came in and out of DST, what offset it was in at any given time. I skipped over a slide that I was going to put in and it just didn't feel like it worked, where you look at, I want to say Venezuela, where it kind of jumps in and out of time zones in 2015. Mm -hmm. It swapped entire time zones. The INATZ database contains this entire historical log. So if you want to do things like if you stored a timestamp, if I know that a timestamp was recorded in a country that swapped time zones after I recorded the timestamp, oh. and I wanted to say exactly how many seconds since then, I at least have that historical information that I know. Or if I wanted to say I have two historical timestamps, and if I want to compare them to each other in the context they were recorded, but between since now and when we recorded, one of them changed time zones, mm -hmm. I know that, hey, listen, like these two places are not two hours off. At the time the timestamps were recorded, they were only one hour off. So I can give you this accurate information uh, historical. And this stuff was, um, I joke about it and I'm severely oversimplifying, but it was basically like one or two or three sysadmins that were just like, I'm trying to do this complex time work and I don't have this information available. Yeah. And UTC offsets are completely insufficient because they change. I propose we do this and you just slap it together. And I want to say it's only like a couple of people that wow. maintain this database upon which the entire history of time zone changes is provided to us in machine-readable format. Yeah. And it's absolutely critical. This TZ database is used in almost, like, Linux downloads it. I want to say Mac OS uses it. Yeah. And it's, like, how we synchronize. Like, when Cairo, like, when Egypt made this last-minute change to mm -hmm. not do DST in 2016, it was just admins. I had to go through and say, I need to update my TZ databases so that 
proper, you know, things can operate, continue on daylight savings time. We don't have bugs that I'm sure you and the listeners have hit these bugs. They're like, oh crap, DST and I forgot it. This database is what tells you whether or not DST is happening in mm -hmm. a particular place, mm -hmm. if you know where that place is. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I liked how you say it, it was like, they're like three, these three guys or whatever system admins were just containing all this chaos. Yeah. 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 Like I'm drastically oversimplifying it. And if the people involved are listening to this podcast, they will probably flip their tables and how poorly I described it. But I just like, <laughs> I just like imagining it was just like one sysadmin screaming in a server room trying to figure this out. That, that's interesting. And I, I was kind of wondering like if the browser would have any like understanding of this, this database automatically and why would I need to care about it? But mm -hmm. you kind of answered that question for me because if I like because we're dealing with time, I might have to go back in time and th mm. think about things, and so I might have to go back to before when Egypt yeah. had DST. It's not a very common thing that we have mm -hmm. to deal with, but when you deal with it, it is so extraordinarily painful. Yeah. My hope <laughs> is that anybody listening to this never has to deal with this problem, and they spend their whole lives wondering what the hell is this guy complaining about. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be absolutely fantastic for them. I hope that happens. <laughs> so what's up with Indiana? <laughs> <laughs> Like, we always joke about like, oh, time's gonna get so much harder when we we go to Mars. Like, we just go to India. <laughs> yeah, it's good. <laughs> it's so it's interesting. I was I was digging into that Wikipedia page, and to be completely fair, like Indiana does straddle this weird area where they're kind of in central time and they're kind of in eastern time. So in terms of sun rising and sun setting, it's really difficult to decide where they need to be. And so as you saw in the presentation, like eventually the central times and the eastern times clumped based off of the cities. And like if you look at Indiana, it's this it's Indiana and, and people from Indiana may take offense to my description of it. Indiana's kind of an kind of an, uh, an in-between state where like some of the cities are effectively suburbs of other cities. So like mm -hmm. parts of Indiana are effectively suburbs of Chicago and effectively suburbs of, I want to say like Cincinnati or something like that. Don't know my geography of that area very well, which is why I feel bad for anybody from Indiana listening to this. Uh, I'm going to tell Adrian Howard to listen to this because he's from Indiana and we've already <laughs> talked about this. But yeah, so there was a lot of consternation. A lot of local people were like, it's weird. We talk about daylight savings time. Why do we do it? It's, oh, it's for the farmers and whatnot. It is 100% not for the farmers. The farmers don't want DSD yeah. because they don't even care. They're not really paying attention to it anyways. They're yeah. doing it, again, based off of the sun. That's the most important thing to mm -hmm. them. The clock is just something you set appointments to. So there's a lot of back and forth and like there's arguments over whether or not DST is causing more energy to burn and why should we do it and all these other things. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, um, Indiana, in terms of geography and where we happen to settle large metropolitan areas, Indiana just drew the short straw. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like, it would have happened to another state. It's just they drew the short straw. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's pretty funny, though, because growing up, they always told us that, I mean, like, oh, yeah, they did DST for the farmers. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's for the growing season. Yeah. So. I've also heard that it's it was to provide more daylight for so you don't have to burn candles as late. Yeah. So there's some of the original arguments. There's, like, some people, like, it... I kind of look at those as almost post facto justifications. Yeah. When I dug into it, like, I really didn't know about George Vernon until I was like, you know, I'd given this talk before, but it was like shorter time slots. I'm like, oh, I need to add extra information. I know. Let's dig into where DST came from. And yeah, George Vernon, he was, he was basically effectively an office worker. He wasn't really, you know, like a um, factory worker, but he was an office worker that had these set times yeah. and he wanted daylight to do his stuff. He wasn't a farmer that wanted more hours for farming or whatever. He wanted to leave work. Like he couldn't leave work until five, but he wanted to make sure that he had a couple hours to go with a butterfly net. Um, <laughs> that was the literal butterfly and, effect. And yeah, dude, 
oh my god i should have used that i hate you now oh that would have been so good and I joke about that. I've completely reduced this uh, guy from New Zealand, a well-known man from New Zealand. I've reduced him. He's known as a biologist, like an insectologist. That's not the word for it. Whatever. He's like he's known as a scientist that does a lot of these things. And I've completely reduced him to some jerk who wants to catch butterflies with a net and just destroyed all of our lives for eternity. Butterflies. So the big takeaway was this is very, very complicated. It's much more complicated than than. Yeah. We could have even known, really, unless you're really like studying that IANA yeah. database and, and I, know the history. Right. It's complicated enough that I am dealing with such imposter syndrome. Like I'm like, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm talking super confidently about time, and I have all the answers. I know all the things. I have no idea what I'm doing. I just <laughs> happen to read a couple more Wikipedia articles and a couple more books than y'all have. And that's <laughs> literally the difference. Like, well, you, you definitely spoke with a lot of confidence in that. It, Thank it, you. It, it was a great talk. I've been thinking this whole time about how we can actually simplify this in completely wrong answers. And I'm thinking, like, sun, the sun's the problem. So maybe we can have giant mirrors that keep the sun <laughs> you everywhere. You know what? If we, just, if we just blow up the sun, everything will be better. Exactly. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> With JavaScript. <laughs> All right, guys. You heard it. We have to blow up the sun. Yeah. Node Rockets 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Well, cool. Thank you, Daniel, for coming on and, and talking to us. This is a lot of fun, and uh, we, we look forward to seeing your talk when it comes online and chatting with you more. Thank you so much for having me. We're back. I'm Nick Nisi. I'm Sam Manza. Hi, I'm Charlie. I'm a developer at Atlassian in Sydney. And on my own time, what I really like to explore is different ways to use um, technology to interact with uh, interfaces or devices. So not really something that I do inside of work, but I realized that as a JavaScript dev, there's actually so much you could do that I like to explore that space. Awesome. And we just got out of your talk at JSConf, and it was called Strike a Pose. Awesome yeah. song. Thank you for putting that in my head <laughs> and getting All-Star moved out. Yeah. <laughs> so you were doing gesture recognition in JavaScript using machine learning and Arduino. Tell us a little bit about a summary of what, what you did. Um, yes, yeah, so what I did is actually using an Arduino and an accelerometer and gyroscope sensor. I'm tracking the motion data from the body when you're holding the sensor. And then I am using TensorFlow.js to actually train an algorithm to create a model that will recognize new gesture it's never seen before, but based on what I trained it with. So you were actually training a model then for that using in JavaScript and then using that model to try and understand gestures that you were doing. Yes. So the thing is that you train it with different gestures. So mm -hmm. I trained three, but it could be five or ten. And what's going on after is that using new data, live data that it's never seen before, it will try to map your data that it's just got to the data it's been trained with. So if you don't train it a gesture, it can't just recognize something it's mm -hmm. never seen before. But if you train a few, you could you can build games or interactive things uh, where you get to move your own way, but it will map it to something it's seen before. I trained uh, three different gestures for a prototype of a Street Fighter game where I wanted to just uh, be able to punch and do an uppercut and uh, hadouken. But uh, at the moment, it's really a rough prototype. So it's just uh, me playing one player. But I think it would be really cool because you could hook up another sensor and actually do like real life games without, without really hitting each other, but like playing on the screen. So, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, that's a... Uh... Such a cool concept for a demo of, of that. Yeah. <laughs> In your first demo, what you're using was an Arduino that connects over Wi-Fi, which I hadn't seen before, and that's really cool. Okay. And is that because it was smaller 
Right. So the, the first reason why is because that's the one I had at home. Okay. <laughs> so so like, it's yeah. there. I just want to test that it's that it's working. But then yes, it is uh, quite small. So. If you want to be able to hold it, it re- fits really fine on your hand. And for the second demo that I built with Harry Potter, the size of the Arduino is actually quite nice if I wanted to add it to like a, a drumstick or mm-hmm. something. Like it fits pretty uh, well. And the fact that it connects via Wi Fi is usually you have less troubles than uh, Bluetooth. Okay. But I do, but in the actual demo, I had to switch to another sensor because the data from the accelerometer wasn't really good enough. So the whole, I could train the model and I could um, use it, but the accuracy was wrong half the time. So I didn't want to um, do that on stage. Not that the actual demo was better. <laughs> no, it was great. <laughs> it really was. So I'm, I'm just trying to like imagine you going through this and training it. That, that basically means that you just have an Arduino and you are... You're just sitting there for a long time yes. doing these different yes. gestures. I did that at home a lot of times. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I'm actually quite surprised with how well it's working because I trained so I trained three different gestures, but the number of, uh, I may, maybe I trained it uh, 25 times per gesture. So okay. it's actually not that much in terms of amount of files. It is pretty accurate. So either I'm doing something wrong or uh, I did something so right that it's just, awesome. <laughs> it just works well. But it means that I trained it a few times, but it's still not like other machine learning things where you have to have millions of mm-hmm. yeah, data sample. But it was it was fun. I think when you build something fun like that, it's yeah. fine if I do it at home and I just punch it in the air. <laughs> yeah, I think when it works the first time, I was so excited. I was like, oh my God, it works. <laughs> I think the audience is excited too. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah for sure. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm kind of curious because I, I have a very basic understanding of machine learning and, and TensorFlow. And so when you're when you're actually trying to train a model like that, you said that you did it 25 or so times at least for each of the gestures for it to understand that. Were you intentionally like trying to vary it up in those movements? So maybe like if you're doing the punch up, maybe do it like a little bit more at an angle sometimes or... Mm, I, I'm not sure. I don't think... I didn't try to like trick the algorithm or yeah. anything. I think I tried to do it the way I would want people to use it. Like not yeah. to try not to trick it. But I think you could definitely try because what I want to be able to have is people use gestures that don't have to be exactly like that. Yeah, I mm-hmm. would like it to be maybe a bit more like this or like this. But I think as it is something that I do outside of work, I'm trying to get to a point quite fast. And yeah. then, and then, if I spend, I want to spend more time on it, so I want to try and uh, maybe yeah, do an uppercut that's a bit shorter than the one before, or in mm-hmm. another direction, and see. I think the more data files that you give it, the more it's going to find some kind of pattern. Yeah. And even in the in the way I created the model, I could also change some parameters and or add layers in the neural network and see see what happens. But I think for now, I was like, it's working. I'm not right. touching yeah. it <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> until the next time if I give that talk again. But yeah, it's. I'm really, yeah, I think it's really exciting to know that I don't, like, nobody has to do the gesture exactly the way I trained it with because it would be impossible to have the same data. So right. it means it's really just your own movements and, like, you're expressing yourself mm-hmm. and interacting with the interface. So that's yeah. fun. <laughs> How much code was this? Because it, it seemed like it's such a cool thing to have, like, a, to train an AI. It seemed like the code snippet wasn't that long. It is not that long, yes. Yeah. Um, so, of course, while well, I couldn't show everything because, right. well, half an hour is, is quite short, but I refactored it quite a few times. So I think in total I wrote a lot of code, but then uh, when I tried to clean it to kind of make it more simple for mm-hmm. people when I make the repo public, it is actually not that much. I think the longest step is 
the data processing part because the well you basically have a function to create the model but I think understanding how you transform the data between what's in a text file to a multi-dimensional array to a tensor yeah I got a bit confused with that as well I'm not even sure I did it right but it's working uh, but I think that part was more complicated but then even being able to use a model is maybe 10 lines of code that's really cool because then even if people are interested to learn about machine learning but they don't want to do the training process you can use uh, pre-trained models on github and in a few lines you could have an object detection application or something like that mm -hmm. so it means that in the end we could have uh, if i was asking everybody to record their gesture we could make a pre-trained open source model of gesture recognition but that's i'm not going to ask everybody to do that <laughs> but it would be possible so it would be fun Yeah, excellent. Cool. And you said you're going to open source this? Yes. So at the moment, I didn't just because it's a bit messy, so I need to clean it up. But I, yes, I'm making the whole thing open source because I, so I built three versions, one with the Arduino, one with a Daydream controller and one with a phone. Mm -hmm. And I really want people to be able to play with that. I want mm -hmm. them to try and maybe it will give people more ideas and we can play games or whatever. Yeah. And I think the one I'm really excited about is the one you can play with your phone because most people have a modern phone that you know, can use the generic sensor API. So I'm like, I think, yeah, if I, I want people to be able to look at the code and do their own stuff with it. And yeah, yeah that's really exciting to me. So. Cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Just going back to like the, the data model and like training that, I'm still trying to process like my very basic understanding of this. And like the training part, that's more of like a, it's not a runtime step, like for the demo, right? It's more of a I'm thinking of like a compile time, like you're compiling a model and then mm -hmm. the model yep. is very fast to run during yes. the demo. Yes. Okay, cool. Yes, your training is not is not running while you're doing the demo. It's just the prediction. Yeah. So when you do your training, you generate a model that you save. It's a file in your application. Mm -hmm. And at runtime, you just you load that file and then it's waiting for data to mm -hmm. predict. So I think what I was quite lucky with as well is that the training process for my demo is actually quite short, but depending on the amount of data that you work with, or if you work with images that have a lot of pixels, the training process can be actually quite long. So depending on what you want to build for my particular prototype, it was in 10 seconds it was done, it was mm -hmm. going through the whole process, but sometimes I've built things in the past where uh, it was training for the entire day. And in the end it fails at the end. So oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So if you had a, like, um, so you said you trained it with like 25 punches, mm -hmm. if you did it with like a thousand punches, do you think it would be a lot more accurate? It would probably be, be, and I think you could have more, because you know, in the demo, one of the demos that I did, you could see that it didn't predict the right uh, gesture mm -hmm. with the phone. I did a punch and it did like an uppercut or a right, yeah, yeah. And I think it's because with the phone, I didn't uh, train it as much because it was a bit of like a last minute idea. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you give it more uh, samples of data, it will recognize uh, yeah. gestures better. So I think, yeah, you could give it you could give it more and the data coming from the phone is actually quite accurate as well compared to the issues i had with arduino so that's also why i'm excited that people can use their phone because you can just yeah stream data and yes the more you train it the better it is so 25 works i think if i only have five the accuracy was like not good at all but yeah. that makes sense it's really not enough data but i was surprised that with 25 per gesture, it was fine. Yeah. So maybe I'm really doing something wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> that's but surprising. Yeah. I would think that you'd have to train it with, I don't know, a lot more than 25. I thought as yeah. well. I was kind of like, I have all weekend. <laughs> but no, it was done quite quickly. So yeah. Cool. So you said you got into this, this demo because of your interest in human-computer interaction. Yes. How did you go from that as an interest to... Street Fighter. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, good question. Sometimes I think about it. I think, well, over time, I've built a few different things in the past with 
motion control as well, but with other sensors like an infrared camera or computer vision, or I've used different pieces of hardware. And I think slowly I'm, <clears throat> I always try to move on and learn something I don't know. And lately it's been machine learning where I've given a talk before where it was machine learning in the browser, more with like image recognition and things like that. Mm -hmm. But then I was... When you start getting into machine learning and you realize that all you need is data, well, data can be coming from anywhere. So then, as I've played with hardware before and I wanted to kind of do it again, I decided to match both. And actually, the Street Fighter demo was inspired by a demo created by a developer called uh, Minko Jevec, who also did a Street Fighter, but he used the camera to track just okay. Okay. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, God, this is really cool. And he wrote a really long, long blog post about it. But I was thinking, with the camera, as long as it, like, as soon as it gets dark, you can't play anymore because the camera can't actually see the gestures and also you have to be in front of the computer mm -hmm. so I was like that gives you some kind of restrictions um, so I just got inspired by that and like well now you could even be more free by I could have really been anywhere on the stage or in the room and play from anywhere mm -hmm. so I just wanted to allow people to play more freely rather than it's kind of like this whole thing of instead of you adapting to the tech it's using the tech to adapt to the way we want to do things so I wouldn't have to be in front of my camera I could just be anywhere and do a gesture that would be my gesture and you can do yeah anything that you want I think I've seen people use things like that to automate their house where you could turn on your light by doing I don't know like yeah. well yeah. Most that I wanted to do and it didn't work, but yeah, that's that would be the plan. But yeah, that's really cool. And I will admit that when your talk first started, and I knew that you were going to be doing some kind of like demo and gesture tracking, I was like looking around for like some kind of sensor that was watching. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah no, not this time. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So that's really cool. And I, I really like demos like this and projects like this because you know it's not just components on, on a page. It's more, you know, mixing the, the physical world with JavaScript and using hardware to do that. And it's it's just really cool. It's not necessarily practical for like most developers' database, but you had a, a great ending quote that I just wanted to make sure we shared in here. And that was, useless is not worthless. And it's, it's kind of, this stuff is kind of useless for you know, a web developer making a web page do mm. cool things, but it is totally not worthless. You learned a lot. You yes. taught us a lot. And <laughs> it was just really cool. No, it definitely. It's uh, because I think, well, I've been building quite a few things that nobody uses over the years. And I think there was a time when uh, people would come to me sometimes and be like, why, why do you build this? You know, it doesn't, nobody can sell it or something. And, but the thing is, there's so much that you learn while building it that yeah. I don't want to sell any of the things that I build. <laughs> I just want to have uh, fun because also sometimes, you know, sometimes it can be difficult to be in the tech industry. Like things are hard to learn. Mm -hmm. And if I'm having a bad day at work or, or if I'm struggling to pick up a new framework, I can just go home and do something that, that I find fun. That's yeah. something that makes me feel, I oh, know I can code and maybe I'm just struggling a little bit to learn, I don't know, React or Vue, but I know I can code because I've built this and I keep the excitement that I have for tech because I think well of course at work we all build websites that you know uh, people have to use mm -hmm. but I'm really excited about the possibilities and I think yeah. that keeps me that really keeps me going I think there's so much cool stuff that we could build but I know I know that it's not useful but there is definitely so so much that I learn while building these things mm -hmm. even if it fails like I learn why it fails or I learn to never do it again or <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but yeah so yeah it's, it's important to me to try to tell people that it's 
fine if you maybe don't want to learn the new shiny framework but you want to try something else mm -hmm. or you know have fun while you're learning that's the way I learned but yeah. I know that it doesn't work with everybody so I totally get that <laughs> no I think uh, like having a side project is a, like a great way I think like what you just said like really hit home for me it was like having a side project is a great way to kind of like I don't know come home after a hard day and like be like no I can code this is like my code and you know like mm -hmm. I'm doing really like neat stuff with it and it's, it's really a good way to build enthusiasm so like yeah. I totally see what you're saying definitely I think that also there's so much that can be done with tech and especially with JavaScript that when you go to work we probably kind of all use the same framework so we mm -hmm. all build the same kind of websites and we're not we don't always get to explore different aspects of the field and the fact that the fact that you can do machine learning in JavaScript is quite like awesome mm -hmm. and the yeah. fact that well you can build a gesture recognition system with like web tech I mean that, that's quite yeah, it's, it's like it's all about exploring and seeing what can be done and you might not have the opportunity to do that at work so sometimes spending a bit of time on the side it's not always easy I totally get that but even if it's just being curious you don't always have to build the thing but at least you know listening or looking at other people's projects or just being inspired uh, that you might come up with an idea of something mm -hmm. you're really excited about as well and and who knows maybe you go back to work and everybody will want to stop what they do and, and do your thing <laughs> never happened to me so far but <laughs> maybe we look forward to these gestures and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I'll tell them <laughs> Yeah, that's really cool. It's really cool being able to, to do that. And uh, if your side project encourages you to Hadouken into the air, then it's a win, yes. Right? yes. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. No, thank you so much. Yeah. It was fun. I feel better now because I've really felt like I failed. But now uh, we had a nice chat. So that's good. We got a good thing going on. Ba, 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 ba.